Pastor Kevin Davis here at Woodland Fringe Church. You know, I, I download a lot of sermons online. One of my biggest pet peeves is whenever they have an announcement for just the listeners online. But the reason I'm doing it here to you guys is because I wanted to let anybody who does not attend Woodland Fringe Church locally to know that we have study guides uh, available that coincides with our series through James. It's a verse-by-verse commentary by local authors, and I just wanted to make that available for you. It's in PDF format. You can read it on your iPhone, your phone, Kindle, tablet, computer, whatever floats your boat. Um, You can receive that by emailing me personally at remade at hotmail.com. R-E-M-A-D-E at hotmail.com. I'll get out of your hair. I'll never do this again, likely until next sermon series begins. Thanks for listening. Uh, God bless you. We pray that he's exalted and you're edified uh, through this sermon. Today we start a series I've been looking forward to in the book of James. And uh, before we head into his work, I would like to start with getting to know who James is. Because the Bible does give us a little bit that we can work with to find out just who the author is of our letter that we'll be studying together. First, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book, this epistle that we get to read together and study. Father, it's it's hard words because James is dealing with the nitty-gritty things that we wrestle with as Christians. And he doesn't pull any punches. He's pretty blunt. But we pray that you would use these words to convict our hearts so that we might change, and not so we can agree with them and walk away, as James warns against in his book. Father, I, uh, I feel unqualified to teach this epistle, as I'm sure anybody might feel that, but... We also know that you have died for our sins through Jesus, and you've given us the power to obey the things that you would ask us to do because you're telling us. And if we serve you as not only Savior, but Lord, we should respond accordingly. Give us the grace to do that. We thank you for your love and your mercy. Pray that you would move me out of the way and say what you would desire. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is growing quite famous in ancient Galilee. If it were in our day, this is the controversial preacher. Contrary to the other rabbis of the day, Jesus is doing signs and wonders, claiming a power that only God has, and that is to forgive sins. He is challenging the laws of Sabbath by healing on the Sabbath. And some rabbis say he's breaking the Sabbath laws by allowing the disciples to, quote, work for food. Then, imagine a day when you wake up and you hear news that a giant crowd has amassed on a hilltop, and there Jesus gathers 12 disciples for his ministry, 12 leaders that he will disciple and that they will help him in this ministry. Jesus has already three close companions. None of them are his immediate family. But now this group seems to be growing to 12. What is this? Is this a growing army? (laughs) 
Mark 3 tells us that immediately after this crowd came together and Jesus selected 12 disciples, that the following happens. It says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. As his family is either coming, or maybe it's even within earshot, Mark would tell us that official scribes from Jerusalem, this is likened to denominational leaders with authority to revoke preaching licenses or withdraw support or classify a rabbi as a heretic. And so they came down to do just that to Jesus. They accuse him of being in league with Satan, doing the devil's work, to which Jesus responds that they have committed a rather unforgivable sin that they are really calling the work of God Almighty, of the Holy Spirit, and they're calling that satanic. They have no idea who God is, is what Jesus is saying. And Mark picks up the story of Jesus' family being there to hear that exchange. And Mark tells us, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The evangelist John kind of picks up on this animosity with Jesus' own family. Perhaps sometime after this event that Mark recorded this, we read about the controversy and tension surrounding Jesus and John. And we read in John chapter 7, After this Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booth was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Among Jesus' brothers was a man named James. Mark 15, or Matthew 13, 55, and Mark 6, 3 would tell us. Later history would know this man as James the Just. If you have siblings, one does not need to imagine or wonder for too long how James or any of Jesus' immediate family members might not be on board with the whole King Jesus story. Even if Joseph and Mary were to relay to their own children the supernatural occurrences of his birth, we read about in Genesis, chapter, in Genesis about how 11 brothers responded to another would-be king child named Joseph. Jesus' brothers were thankfully not throwing Jesus into a pit and selling him to slavery. Nevertheless, they were thinking he was apparently crazy and they egged him on. What is very telling is that while Jesus is on the cross, what he does concerning his mother. In John chapter 19, verses 26 through 27, we see Jesus commission John the disciple to take care of his mother, not any of his brothers. And this tells us that Jesus did not consider any of his brothers to be in a position to do so. He says, who is my family? Those who do my will. My guess is none of them had faith in Jesus. If there was ever one proverbial offstage event 
that happened in the Bible, and by offstage I mean talked about, but not narratively. It's what is told to us in one simple verse of one of Paul's letters. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about the appearance of the resurrected Christ before what we're celebrating or observing today, Pentecost. And to give our one little verse a little context, I want to read from 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 3, and then end on the one little verse. Paul says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Many believe, and I'm one of them, that Paul is not designating single names just to show prominence to the names, but also prominence to the encounters. That is, the resurrected Jesus had a one-on-one -on -one encounter with Peter. And verse 5 in John chapter 21 kind of tells us that much. Jesus appeared to crowds and crowds. But then verse 7, he appeared to James, comma, then to all the apostles. What happened in that encounter? <laughs> Why did that encounter happen? This was weeks after Jesus commissioned John the disciple to be the primary caretaker of their mother. Did that affect James or any of the other brothers? <laughs> did the, the resurrected encounter for James become his conversion? I have uh, two brothers, and if perfect King Jesus ever had any sort of human camaraderie, as most brothers do. Part of me smiles at this encounter, because here's how I envision it. James is distraught, crying his eyes out. His brother is dead, his perfect brother that he acted on and belittled and thought dismissively of, who in turn on his horrific deathbed proverbially wrote James out of the family with all his brothers and I can imagine James sitting at a table or out in the wilderness, crying and pondering and distraught, and then maybe all of a sudden he hears a familiar voice, I told you so. <laughs> right? Jesus! <laughs> I, I, didn't know, I don't know, maybe you think everything that comes out of the mouth of Jesus has to be pithy, reverent, and solemn, and he's unable to have humor, but that's how I see it. It doesn't matter. What matters is the stark change from the end of the Gospel accounts being written out of the proverbial family to the beginning of the book of Acts. It seems that the 50 days between Jesus' resurrection and Pentecost, that James and likely Jesus' family is converted. Conversion and salvation can happen any day, and I'm sure seeing your once dead, now resurrected brother who is glorified as king could probably have a profound impact on you, and you need little time to reconsider your opinion of him. And before Pentecost happens, as people are gathered in the upper room praying, considering the office of the Apostle Judas and his being replaced, we read that among those gathered are, in those, all these were one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Gathered in that upper room praying are the seeds of the church. And in fact, we can thank these people for this place today. <laughs> Without them, 
there would be no Woodland Fringe Church. And amid those 120 bodies, stuffy, hot, and sweaty, praying is a person who would emerge as a church leader. Likely the church leader in Jerusalem and kind of the liaison with the Jews who kept a very contentious relationship as decent as possible. His name is James. I don't know about you, but I think of the New Testament usually generally focused on, on Jesus first and foremost, and then primarily Paul, and then Peter is in there in those chapters somewhere in there. Paul has a lot of New Testament epistles, and he is kind of a big deal. Let's not forget that. He is likely given focal point for good reason. But Paul saw himself as a man who answered to James. As Paul is writing to a church in Galatia and giving a recap of his own conversion and claiming to be an apostle among the Christians, Paul writes in Galatians 2.9, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. Paul sees that the leadership of the New Testament church, post-Jesus walking around in the flesh after he's ascended, are three pillars. Peter, John, and the brother of the Lord, James. And we see this in the book of Acts. After Peter is miraculously released from prison for the umpteenth time in Acts chapter 12, you know the story. He knocks on the door and the recipient is so happy she doesn't even let him in, but she closes the door and goes and tells, hey, we've been praying for Peter, get out the door. And Peter's outside like, I'd like to come in. And so whenever she finally remembers Peter at the door, he hardly says a word other than, let James and the other brothers know that I'm free. And he takes off, that's what verse 17 tells us. It's interesting that Peter separated the name of James from the other brothers. James is one of the pillars of the church. Chapter 15 in Acts, the words used to describe this monumental council on the usage of the law when it comes to Gentile Christians. After many have had their say, the last words spoken about in the matter in Acts 15.13, Luke records, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. James seems to be chairing this council. <laughs> we see more evidence of his leadership in Acts chapter 21, where Paul returns from some of his travels, and Acts 21, 17 through 29, tells us an interesting story where James, or at least some of the people with James, um, tells Paul to basically go above and beyond to show yourself a devout Jew. You need to go do these Jewish rituals. Some of the, the Jews were hearing that Paul was basically telling the Gentiles the truth, hey, you don't need to be Jewish in order to be Christian. What's most intriguing, though, is that Paul does exactly what he's told. He, he does what James tells him to do. Meanwhile, you read in some of Paul's letters, like Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 10, that Paul is okay by telling others to not practice the law verbatim, that in Christ there is freedom. Not freedom from the moral laws, but some of the other laws, such as ceremony and dietary. So commentators and scholars lose sleep over what Paul is doing right here. In, in Acts chapter 21, and he seems to be kowtowing to James and those in Jerusalem to put on a front. But my thoughts are Paul is doing it out of reverence and submission to James, an authority and a pillar of the church, as well as he's doing what he, he actually told Timothy to do earlier in Acts chapter 16, verse 3. He told Timothy to circumcise himself because Jews might be more willing to hear from Timothy who has half-Jewish and half-Gentile uh, relations. 
So, and Timothy did it. Oh, wow. Anyways, um, as for the main theme of James's work, though, it is faith. It's what we're calling it, advanced faith, or faith activated. There we go. James writes this letter in the mid-40s A.D., so within the decade of Jesus' death and resurrection and James' conversion. Some believe that James is writing this letter before the big council in Acts chapter 15 because it would seem like James might refer to such an occasion in his letter. You will note rather quickly that James does not draft this like a letter from Paul. In Paul, usually he has blocks of things he talks about and he has a good progression and it's relevant altogether, weaving themes throughout the book. James does do that, but he does it in a very different way. He writes rather cyclical and that he comes back to familiar themes time and time again in between other themes that he's talking about. Many consider James's letter in the New Testament a, a, an idea of wisdom literature. So think about the book of Proverbs, New Testament book of Proverbs. But this, this really makes James's letter fashioned for our 21st century instant gratification, fast food, sensational tastes for three reasons. First of all, James is intensely practical. Like the Proverbs, which gives you very practical and applicable statements, wise people do this, dumb people act that way. James is kind of like that. Lots of you may not like sermons like this one that's been so far with all this context and background and so forth. You just like, do this. That's James. He's very practical. Secondly, James is very concise. And he really leaves no room for us to scratch our heads and say, I wonder what you mean here. In fact, I was going to call this entire sermon series my beloved nickname for the book, the Book of Ouch. <laughs> James is not really bathed in 21st century political correctness. Don't hurt my feelings. He's very concise, very blunt, and he wants to be understood more than he wants to massage your backs. And it's because of this point I'm attempting to name my sermons to get the plain point across each sermon. This one's called Survival, Survivor, and we'll get there. Thirdly, James uses illustrations. This is something that I'm trying to learn to do. It's not my strong suit. Um, James uses imagery and illustrations to make his point. So you see how James, unbeknownst to him, was writing a letter to 21st century American church. Practical, concise, and illustrative. Not an intellectual book work, but plain to understand, and then showy how he teaches it. Don't let the bluntness in his letter, though, give you the wrong impression. This man is a very humble soul, and we really can see it in his brief opening statement. James, a servant of God and of the Lord, Jesus Christ... There are a lot of Jameses in the New Testament, so some critics have wondered, can we be sure that this is James, the brother of Jesus? And it is James's terse introduction that actually is the most compelling evidence that this is James, the brother of Jesus, because any other lesser-known James would probably have to classify who he was a little bit. But if you're in the early church and then there's this widely circulating letter like this one, with an introduction this quick, you don't have to ask, well, I wonder what James this is. <laughs> it's the brother of Jesus. It's the pastor or the leader of the church in Jerusalem. It's one of the pillars of the church is who it is. Furthermore, the words that James uses to introduce himself here shows his humility. See, James doesn't take authoritative stock 
in being the Messiah's brother, because simply his being a blood relative of Jesus gives him no more authority either. That's what, that's what Jesus' point in Mark was. Blood relations don't matter. Whoever believes me and does my will is my brother, sister, mother. So James doesn't name himself. James, the pastor at Jerusalem and the brother of Jesus, so you better listen. Rather, he adopts what many New Testament apostles and writers adopt, and he calls himself a slave, a servant, a bondservant of Jesus. One who's been purchased and owned. And that's really who James calls himself. The rest is given to who God is. James is the only New Testament author who has this phrase of a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is important because any Jew who puts together the word God, Theo, and the word Lord, Kyrios, the same word we use for master or sir, whenever, when any Jew puts these two words together, they're referring to the same being, God Almighty, Yahweh. James, then, is likely giving Jesus here a deity statement. Sometimes the word and, used in Greek, does not just mean a conjunction, but rather the idea of namely, or indeed. So, the, in other words, James could be saying a servant of God, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how James, the pillar of the church, introduces himself. And he says he's a servant of Jesus for good reason. James mirrors Jesus' teachings more than any other New Testament epistle. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll find that James is teaching very similar things. In fact, in one verse, he almost verbatim quotes exactly what Jesus says. One of my commentaries puts it really well. It says, The author of this letter seems to have been so soaked in the atmosphere and specifics of Jesus' teachings that he can reflect them almost unconsciously. That's my hope to be someday. <laughs> James is writing to, quote, the twelve tribes in the dispersion, and he sends greetings. Two theories, and then we'll move on to the stuff you really care about. <laughs> Since James is in authority in Jerusalem, many believe that James is writing primarily to just Jews in the greater Palestine area, which would make sense in a more literal, ethnic way, if that's what he's writing, that's who he's writing to. A theory that I agree with, though, is when people look over at Peter's letter and they see in 1 Peter 1, he uses the idea of the dispersion in his greeting, but then he lists off a bunch of places where predominantly Gentiles would be. And so the point is, is that the New Testament church, in large part, saw themselves as the fulfillment of Israel, the very people of God, because they put their hope in the Messiah. And you think about Romans, it's what we're going through at Bible study, and it says pretty much over and over, he who is circumcised and from Abraham, yet does not have faith, is not a Jew, but he who is not circumcised but shares the faith of Abraham is a true Jew. So that's what Paul says over and over. Galatians 6.14, Paul said, calls all of the Galatian Christians the Israel of God, and in Galatia were Gentiles. So that's my introduction. So, now for the sermon. Don't worry, I told you it's practical, concise, and illustrative, and we only have three verses to cover. Count it all joy, my brothers. Brothers, not laymen, not below me, but beside me, co-equals. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know 
that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. James is writing to Christians in the mid-40s, the atmosphere that they're experiencing when it comes to persecution, and I say this hesitantly, but it's almost like America, maybe one significant notch higher. We know in America that some Christians are being called into court for really what amounts to disagreement with their beliefs, but we just call it a discrimination problem. We know that social boycotting is happening, and just this social belief of, oh, these backwards-leaning people, they're so hateful and so bigoted. And some of the persecution that's happening in Palestine at the time, oh, they're so bigoted, they left the temple, they think the temple is for non-believers, and they judge us, and they think the Messiah has come, and they think they're better than us. They think they're real Jews, and we're not. But I said it's also one notch higher, because these Christians are dispersed literally, and it could be about what is talked about in Acts from time to time. We hear about the stoning of Stephen, and then we read in Acts 8.1, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So depending on the timeline, James could be writing, in fact, around the time Paul is still Saul, or maybe just a little bit after. A few radical Jews are really at the forefront of persecuting the Christians, not necessarily the Romans at the time. So James opens up, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials. If we take into account James's entire letter, he refers to a lot of economic persecution, wealthy people who take advantage of them, poverty, displacement, despair. What trials are you facing that James would encourage you, that the Holy Spirit would encourage you to count as joy? These few words here at the beginning of verse 2, um, it's been translated by my commentary. He sees, sees it better translated this way. Regard it altogether joy. Because the point here, James is not saying sorrows are sins when you're going through trials. Friends, we can often do little to truly control our environment. Things happen to us that we don't expect, nor do we want. James here is framing how the believers should interpret and think about these events. And altogether, he says, regard it as joy. This is a faithful Christian attitude, one of joy. It's hard to find joy in trials, but the point in trials is not the trial itself, but the fruit it produces. Friends, if you're going through a trial, take joy. Your faith is being strengthened. Take joy. It's going to produce fruit. Take joy. And here's why, says James, verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. James here calls the trials that believers face tests. And these are not tests to prove whether a believer has faith to begin with or not, but rather it is a purifying of the faith that somebody already has. And this is kind of the theme of the book, your faith. 
your faith being purified to show that it is true faith, it is rock-solid faith, it is the faith that Paul talks about that saves. It's a living and active faith. And this should give us joy too, because this means our testings and our trials have purpose. They're not pointless. I've told this story before, but I think it's been a long time, and I'm not saying that you would have forgotten it, but... <laughs> We do have some new faces, and if you remember the story, bear with me. Whenever I was in Nazarene Bible College online, each student of each class were required to submit um, autobiographies to the classroom so people got to know each other because it's not like you're sitting next to each other in the classroom. One tragic situation I heard of was when one of the female classmates gave her story and that she and her husband, who already had twins of their own, we're going through a long, rigorous, painful time to adopt a girl from Russia. A younger teen, maybe a little older. And the story was full of God's hand. He opened the right doors. He sustained them through all the trials. There were answered prayers and miracles, and God's hand was so very evident. And after having this teenage girl for some time, the father, the husband of this woman, left his family and became romantically involved and ran away with this adopted daughter. Tragedy. Horrible. What of that trial is something to take joy in? What of that trial produces endurance? How do we know that this testing has purpose? It is not this trial pointless. The woman I was talking to came to hold a theology that I find and think Orthodox Christians should find to be heretical, and that is called open theism. Instead of God being uh, all-knowing or all-sovereign, God may not know the future. God may not be aware of all the contingencies and routes in the world. And the reason this woman came to help hold this view was of that trial right there. And that is why, or how would a loving God open all the doors, miraculously intervene, and bring this adopted daughter to this family if God knew without a shadow of a doubt the choices that this father and this adopted daughter were going to take? I can't answer that question, but where the rubber meets the road is where faith is purified. This is back in our verse 3. Verse 3, for you know directly relates to counting or regarding trials altogether as joy. We can take joy in our trials because we know they won't kill us. They won't end us. They won't break us. They will only go to refine our faith and testing. What does this mean? That the outcome of our trials will be what we always desire? Or that the outcome of our trials will steer clear of our biggest fears or our biggest worries of how it might end? That is not promised. That the free moral agency of the husband will lead him to repentance and he will renounce his incestuous affair with his adopted daughter and become the Christian husband and father he should be? No. Rather, the trials we face may, unashamedly, the Bible tells us, end more horribly than we ever thought. Revelation 13.10, Jesus says to John to give to the churches facing hard persecution, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. 
A good ending, a longed-for, wanted, personal choice ending is not what's promised, nor is it should be where our joy comes from. What is promised is that whatever the outcome will be, it will serve to purify our faith. It will produce steadfastness, endurance, perseverance. The actual word has a picture of remaining under. Right? Don't tap out. Don't give in. Bear the, long, bear the load as long as you've called to. It's serving you better in the end. Because there might be a route of escape. There might be a way where you could let it go. There might be a way out. But it might not be the right route to take. That's the idea of endurance. In the book of Hebrews and Galatians, the authors exhort their readers to stay faithful. Why? Because they were tempted to leave their various trials and their way out was apostasy. Their escape plan was renouncing Christ so that they might not remain under but escape. In my story, I pleaded with this woman through emails and listening to not go against the endless amounts of scripture that I believe show open theism to be wrong. A God who does not know the future is a God who cannot deliver, period, in my book. To save God from what we might consider to be morally ambiguous in the fact that he lets horrible tragedies like wayward husbands and fathers run off with their adopted daughters or that God might allow his one and only son to be horrifically and unfairly crucified. We don't save God from anything if we say, well, maybe he didn't know. In fact, we make God to be no better than we are. We'd be putting our trust in someone telling us, well, I don't know what's coming either, but I certainly got your back. How? I prefer a God who knows all things and thus works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And thankfully, the God that I prefer, all-knowing and sovereign, as I believe what the Bible teaches. Reframe how you view trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So don't escape. Don't tap out. Don't take the route, the exit. Because I'll tell you right now, the trial, no matter the trial, there is always an escape. Whether you are being tempted in sin or being led to the slaughter for your faith or you're trying to ignore the call of God on your life for a specific task, good or bad, righteous or unrighteous, faithful or apostate, there is always a route of escape. And the Holy Spirit knows those tests and trials that you must be steadfast, resolute, <coughs> persevere to the end. And to let steadfastness have its full effect. Do you hear that? You must allow endurance to do its intended work. As in, it's in your hands to do that. Because certainly, there are trials and temptations that we should flee from. I think Joseph did the right thing when Potiphar's wife tried to get him to sleep with her. See, there was no, I should stay right here and endure to the end, so keep trying to seduce me. I need to purify my faith and my resolve. 
His faith and resolve were purified in the trial he faced after he fled Potiphar's wife and then he was thrown into prison. The trials that I believe James are talking about here are trials in which rocky ground recipients of the word that Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower. Matthew 13, verses uh, 20 and 21 says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Christian, do you want to grow? Here's what I think, because this perfectly describes me, and it may describe the common, comfort-loving, convenience, thriving American. Our faith does not grow because we don't listen to James right here. Theme of the book. James is talking about faith that will develop into something that is, quote, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How? If we endure the trial. If we have steadfastness. Could it be that what's hindering our growth, what's imperfect in us and incomplete and immature in us, what causes us to lack is when God has tested us in faith and we have taken the escape route too many times. The trial looked too big, the testing seems too rigorous, and I do want my personal desired end and my desired outcome, and I don't think it's coming, so I'll bail out. I'll ignore it. I'll take the easy escape. Verse 4 ends with describing the faith of the steadfast, perfect and complete. Perfect and whole, without blemish. The idea is in the Old Testament, these were acceptable sacrifices. As we ought to be, so tells us, Paul tells us in Romans 12, verse 1, living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. So you and I, we want to balk at what James is telling us. He's practical. He's talking about matters where it hurts. Trials, all of us have them. We all face them. He's concise and blunt, endure them. But that's not the American way. No, says James, it's the Christian way. And he's illustrative, reminding us the words of another follower of Christ named Paul to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God, to do what God wants. Hmm. What trial are you facing? Is it a passive trial outside of your control, something in your life that's, that's bothering and it's causing you to really question, really make sure your faith in God is what it is? Trust in God, trust in belief that God will bring you out of this trial all the better, perfect your faith, make you a perfecting, maturing Christian, lacking nothing. Is the trial you're facing active? God's got some demands on your life. It's not really a trust me in this situation trial. It's God saying to you, I want you to make some changes trial. Conviction never stops when you talk to God because he wants you to repent, but you're always looking for the route of escape. It's called ignorance. And we like to focus our attention on, on matters of the faith in hope that the Spirit might take his focus on the things he wants us to change. It's called changing our theology away from biblical truth to make us comfortable about things in life. God didn't see the future. Obviously, he must not have known. Or, God, why are you telling me about here? I'm reading my Bible every day. It's so much better when you endure. 
because God's in the habit of producing survivors as his sons and daughters. You can count it joy when you are in trials because the outcome, whatever it is, will not mean your downfall. It will mean your survival, even if you die literally. You might ask, how so? James knows firsthand that even if you die, you will survive. He met the resurrected Lord face to face. His brother, whom he knew, died on the cross, appeared to him in a one-on-one encounter. The author of Hebrews gives what I find to be one of the most peculiar passages in the Bible. And it has direct relation with trials, producing the sort of outcome that James is referring to here. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Sounds like he's going through a trial. To him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. First, we see that Jesus is in a trial, and again, to regard a trial as joy in its entirety does not mean we have to negate those times where we have to be real with God. I think about Jesus in the garden, and I've made mention many sermons in these last few months, he was real with God. He wanted the cup to pass. He experienced fear and sorrow and anguish, but he persevered. And it's interesting The author of Hebrews talks about Jesus in the same trial later on, and he says, for the joy that was set before him. Hmm. But here's the tricky part in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience. Doesn't that almost sound a little irreverent? (laughs) That God could learn something? But what this is saying is not that Jesus went from disobedient to obedient. It's not that he was disobedient and then he learned it. It means he moved from untested, right? Jesus couldn't say that he would obey to the point of death until he obeyed to the point of death. So he went from untested to tested and proven true. His obedience was learned when he obeyed. You cannot learn something until you learn something. Does that make sense? (laughs) I don't want you to walk away saying that, well, Jesus learned obedience. There was a time he wasn't obedient. The author of Hebrews says one chapter back in Hebrews 4.15 that Jesus was sinless. Jesus is our prime example. James is commanding his readers what Jesus did. And saying that this is how you should be. Because the very next verse in Hebrews about Jesus learning obedience Sounds a little familiar to what James says in James 1.4. Jesus, about Jesus says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being made perfect, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is not telling his readers to do anything that Jesus already hasn't done himself. Friends, you and I are made in the image of God, and when Jesus was steadfast, when Jesus endured, when Jesus remained under the burden that was on him and he surely wanted to escape, he was made perfect. He died, but he was a survivor. And in fact, he offered survival, he offered redemption and salvation to the world, all because he remained under the testing of his faith and the trial of the world's lifetime. And it is in him, in the center of the gospel, that you find the strength 
and the will and the power to survive, to endure, to remain under, to remain steadfast. You can survive your trial and it will make you all the better. God saved the world through Jesus' survival of his trial, and how he survived was becoming a sacrifice. How you and I survive our trials is becoming his sacrifice. And we regard what we're facing as altogether joy and to see God's redemptive hand in what he's doing. To know that you and I will survive. In Christ, we're survivors. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are cut to the heart to know what James was saying is not it's not fluffy language, it's pretty concise, pretty blunt. But Father, we take joy in knowing over and over again that everything, everything you would tell your friends and disciples to do are things that you have faced in the most extreme of ways. Many of us are going through trials. Perhaps we heard things today we didn't want to hear. But Father, I'm grateful that you're more honest with us than concealing things from us. And I'm also grateful for the encouragement that it is that we will survive, no matter how the trial ends, because our joy is not taken from the trial itself. It's taken in what you're doing with it. So, Father, to, today and this week, would you use this in our lives? Father, would we walk out of here today taking relief to know that you are with us, that you will give us the power to survive the trial, that, Father, no matter how it ends, our joy is made sure and our faith is purified through you and you alone. And, Father, may this be a blessing to others who might be going through trials and need to hear this word. Would you give us the words to say in those moments? Father, we love you and we thank you and we... Pray all these things in the power and word of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.